Welcome to the HeartStrong Discipleship Podcast. Visit heartstrong.life forward slash login to access the notes from today and all the benefits of our membership community. One to the two and two to the three. Let the world see the Holy Trinity. Let's become HeartStrong Disciples of Jesus together. Father, we are grateful once again to gather. Thank you, Lord, that you never slumber, you never sleep, and that you're always uh, open, your heart is open to our prayers. And so we pray for Caroline this morning for all that she has prepared, Lord, that she has liberty and freedom to share that, and that we have ears to hear it. Lord, we pray as well for uh, Trina, that uh, you touch her body. Father, COVID has been so horrible in our world. And it's affected so many people. And as Trina's body struggling with it, Lord, give her strength and give her healing in her body. We pray as well for Oceana. Thank you, Lord, that yes, she Lord. made a step to say yes to you. And as Joyce prayed yesterday, Lord, we take Acts 1631 seriously, that not only will we be saved, but our whole household. Amen. And so we cast all our cares on you now, knowing that you care for us. And may we have a wonderful day in your word and in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, got it. Well, we're doing chapters 31 and 32 today. So, but before I begin, I have to tell you that chapter 31 was one of those hard chapters for me to study, as I'm sure it was for many of you. As we read accounts such as this, we must keep in mind that we do not have a God who willfully kills. We are told that it is his will that all would be saved. But here's the thing we must not lose sight of. The Lord always deals first with his own people and then with those outsiders who persecute his people. Genesis 12, 13 says, those who curse Israel will he will curse and the time has come to punish the Midianites because Midian was wrong in following Balaam's counsel and trying to destroy Israel. In other words, the same foundational God, God principle governed Israel as did all the nations of the earth. And the chief of those principles is that all will perish for their sins if they do not accept the grace of God as an escape route. We only have to read Revelation to realize that God is a God of judgment, and we must cry out to God for, for, for mercy that his judgment would be delayed on this world, and to hide ourselves in the atoning work of Christ at the cross. God's judgment is still a reality, and the sacrifice of Jesus is the only hope for sinners, the only hope for us, our friends, and our family members. While God is all loving, he's also a God of justice, and he will execute that justice in the most favorable manner, including by means of death. We've just recently read in chapter 25 that the Hebrew men, God's set-apart people, accepted the offer of the Moabite and Midianite women to mix with them, to engage in immoral sex and idolatry. The crime here is dishonoring God by idolatrous worship. 
God ensured that the leaders behind this would be arrested and executed as they were responsible for the tribe's obedience to the law. The rest of the guilty died by the plague. As is the God's principle, after the Lord finished dealing with his own people, he then turned to those who are not his people to deal with them in like manner. This is the context of our account of Numbers 31, the extermination of Midian. Midian is a people who are not God's people and who have intentionally drawn God's people away from him. Then we will look at the purification following the battle. Moses told those who had killed or touched a dead person that they would have to stay away for seven days. After that, we will look at the dividing up, dividing up of the spoils. God gave Moses instructions for the splitting up of the spoils of their victory. Everything was divided according to God's command. As we continue reading in chapter 32, we shouldn't just see it as a story of ancient history where one group of people refused to do all that, God, uh, that Moses and God desires of them. We should see it as a guide to our lives in terms of what he wants us to accomplish with what he has given us. I am convinced that there is nothing God appreciates more than when we say, in effect, my time belongs to you, God. What do you want me to do with it? That is, in effect, how we surrender our lives to him, by offering him what we have in life. So let's dig in. The first couple of the verses of chapter 31 bring to light that, indeed, the war against Midian is the Lord's vengeance. And it is Israel who is carrying out this vengeance on behalf of God. Therefore, they are to accomplish this holy war precisely as he orders it. In verses 1 and 2, the Lord said to Moses, take vengeance on the Midianites for the Israelites. After that, you will be gathered to your people. The phrase take vengeance is stern. Take vengeance means to take revenge, avenge oneself, be punished. The few, first use of this word was in Genesis 4.15. Whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. In Leviticus 19.18, individuals in Israel are instructed, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people. On the other hand, God has a right to vengeance, declaring, I will also bring upon you a sword which will execute vengeance for the covenant that we read in Leviticus 26, 25. The last Old Testament use of this term is Nahum 1, 2. And it gives us a good sense of the meaning as it applies to divine vengeance. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he receives wrath for his enemies. God allows and uses men to take vengeance as in this chapter. Knowing that God is a God of righteous, just, holy, perfect vengeance should comfort all who have been unfairly treated or injured in this life. For Deuteronomy 32, 43 says, Rejoice, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance on his adversaries and will atone for his land and his people. And we must always remember that God's vengeance is not directed at man, but at sin. Just a side note right here. It is tempting to try to take on the role of God and seek to punish those we feel deserve it. But because we are sinful creatures, it is impossible for us to take revenge with pure motives. We are told not to avenge ourselves, but to leave the business of judgment and payment to, for transgression to God, 
who knows all the details and can rightly assess or judge the situation and the sin. We are prone to react from hurt or offense that is an emotional point of view and not necessarily based in truth. This is why the Mosaic law contains the command, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That was Leviticus 19, 18. Even David, a man after God's own heart, refused to take revenge on Saul, even though David was the innocent party being wronged. David submitted to God's command to forego vengeance and trust in him. 1 Samuel 24, 12 says, May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As Christians, we are following the Lord Jesus' command to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, leaving the vengeance to God. So here's my very first question for today. Have I or have we taken vengeance on someone we in, when indeed it is not our place to do so, big or small? Moving on to verses three to six. If you recall from early chapters in Numbers, we were about, uh, there were about 600,000 men who were able to fight in a war. That was the soldier headcount from a few, few chapters back. Apparently, this was a war against the Midianites in a warm-up for the big one, a big war once the Israelites actually entered the land of Israel. God says that only 12,000 men are going into this battle. Now, if my math is correct, about one out of 50 men were needed here for this battle. We also have a person from chapter 12, uh, 25 coming back for an encore appearance. Phineas was the grandson of Aaron, the high priest. He was the one who brought the deadly plague on the Israelites to an end by killing a couple having inappropriate relations in front of the main Jewish temple. That couple consisted of a Jewish man and a Midianite woman. Anyway, in verse six, it states that he was to be a leader in this battle and uses the trumpets to signal the troops. This is a legitimate holy war of God's people for God's honor, fighting against the troops of adversary, in this case, disguised as Midianites. Satan has always tried to destroy Israel, and this would be no exception, but he always underestimates God. God will win this victory with 12,000 men led by a holy priest with, a, with holy vessels and a holy trumpet. The Israelites themselves were already punished. Many of them died due to the sexual sin of this relationship. However, the Midianites were never punished up to this point. So Moses was told in effect, I have one more mission for you before you die. I need you to show the Israelites how seriously I take sin by eliminating what has caused the Israelites to sin this way in the first place. The Israelites fought and defeated five specific tribal leaders of the Midianite clans. They killed all the men and took the women, children, and animals as plunder. Then they brought all that plunder to Moses and to Eleazar the priest in order to know what to do next. It also says that they killed Balaam. If you recall from chapter 22, there was a non-Israelite prophet named Balaam. He was hired by a tribe of people called the Moabites to curse the Israelites for them. Balaam said, in effect, I can't curse what God has blessed because God told him that he must not in Numbers 22:12, And he makes a number of speeches in order to state that fact. 
The problem with Balaam is that he still wanted to earn the fee for cursing the Israelites. Since he could not curse what God has, has blessed, he essentially tells the Moabite king, I've got an idea. Have the local Midianite women entice the Israelite men to have sexual relations with them in order to honest, honor the false god Baal. And that I reference Revelation 2.14. Let's move on to verses 13 to 18. In disobedience to God's command, the soldiers did not exterminate all the Midianites, but brought the women and children back as captives. This angered Moses because the presence of the Midianite women and the girls in the camp only gave further opportunity for the sin that had almost destroyed Israel. The nation had won the battle, but was now in danger of losing the victory, a mistake that God's people have made more than once down through the centuries. So Moses decrees that all virgin women are to be spared, but kept, of course, as slaves. And all women who are sexually experienced are to be executed. The reasoning is simple. Only women involved in the apostasy of the Israelites against God should die. Why should a woman who obviously never had sexual relation with anyone be killed? They had no, no part in persuading the Israelite men to worship Kamash, the god of the Moabites. God is saying to those of us who trust in him, I want no sinful lifestyle to be part of the lives of believers. Therefore, you believers must kill or eliminate from our own lives anything associated with a sinful lifestyle. This slaughter was not the result of collateral damage in the heat of the battle or even an outrage committed in the heat of wars in humanity. It was a purposeful judicial slaughter after the battle was already over. The conquest was a holy war aimed at driving out an entire human population from Canaan, destroying everyone there to purge idolatry and remove its temptations. And there I reference Deuteronomy 20, 16 to 18. The next issue that is brought up in this chapter has to do with the spoils of war and even how the soldiers are to cleanse themselves from the battle. In, we're moving on to verses 19 and 20. Even battles fought and won with God's blessing cause death. And since the soldiers have been defiled in battle by touching dead bodies or even being in the vicinity of dead bodies, they had to obey the law of cleansing. And Moses applied the same rule to the female captives who were now expected to obey Jewish law. The returning army and its captives stayed outside the camp for seven days, undergoing ritual purification on the third and seventh days. They washed their clothes and anything made of hides, goat hair, or wood. Where possible, they purified things with fire and the water of purification. Things that were not fireproof, they purified by water alone. This use of fire and water mimicked what we would now recognize as a good hygienic procedure. However, it was actually about reconstituting the community's ritual purity. It was an older baptism which foretold deeper cleansings with water and fire. One example is found in Matthew 3.11, which says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. So let's move on to verses 21 to 24. 
Apparently, the washing was not just for things one can wear. It was also for metal objects like gold, silver, and bronze, as listed in verse 22. By listing all of these metals, the text is saying, don't forget anything. The soldiers didn't have to throw anything away of value, but it did have to be cleansed before it could be used for God again. And why should we care about this stuff? The idea is that if we trust in God to guide our lives, then in, in effect, all we do is holy in what we are separate and we are separated for his use. Therefore, anything we have and bring to him can be used by him. Moses had a stick. A widow had some oil and a boy had a small lunch and Peter had a ratty old fishing net. Everyone has something God can use, even a testimony to offer someone the name of Jesus. So my second question is, what do you have in your hands, so to speak, that can be used by God? Verses 25 to 54 deals with the spoils of war, and it is truly amazing. All captives and goods were to be divided according to a strict formula. Moses told the soldiers not to keep from themselves all that they had took, but to give a portion to God and another portion to the people who didn't go to war. Let's be honest. After reading all those numbers, if I asked us 30 seconds after reading all those numbers in verses 25 to 54, how many cattle did the soldiers get to keep? I doubt many of us would get the answer right. While the specific number of girls and animals taken may have significance, we don't need to focus on that aspect right now. But what we do need to notice is the obedience. The soldiers captured a large share of stuff, over 800,000 animals and 16,750 shekels in gold, which is worth several million dollars in our current economy. They did, did exactly what their civil leader Moses and religious leader Eleazar asked them to do, which was to give one five hundredth of their share to the priests. Here is another thing to catch. Consider that God told Moses to only send 12,000 troops, yet among the loot was 32,000 young girls and female babies that were captured. That means the number of Midianites was likely much larger than 12,000 men. It may have been a teaching for these soldiers, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. First, 1 Samuel 14, 6. Verse 49 says that not, not one man was killed during this battle. The commanders of the troops were so grateful for the misrec this miraculous deliverance that they brought a freewill offering of gold ornaments to the Lord. They did this to make atonement, which likely means they recognized that the lack of casualties was an act of divine grace beyond anything they deserved. They recognized this victory was from the Lord and offered these valuables as a memorial offering to God. This made me think, do I show my gratitude and thanks to God as often as I should for the blessings I see in my life daily? I'd like to give you a New Testament story of gratitude, reading from Luke 17, 11 to 18. And it came about while he was on the way to Jerusalem that he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a, a certain village, 10 leprous men who stood at a, at a distance met him and they raised their voices saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priest. And it came about that as they were going, they were cleansed. 
Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answered and said, were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found who turned back to give glory to God except this foreigner? This man fell on his face, the true posture of gratitude and worship for us today. So now let's get back to the wilderness just outside of Israel and look at chapter 32, starting at verse 1 through verse 5. For those of you who are familiar with the geography of that area, the Israelites are now just on the southeast side of the Sea of Galilee. Here is where the opening scene takes place. In order for the Israelites to actually enter the land of Israel, they had to cross over the Jordan River, which is the main water source that feeds into the Sea of Galilee. There are nine cities or towns named there. These are the names of the places that were conquered and destroyed by the Israelites as they journeyed their way to the land of Israel. At this point, the leaders of the two 12 tribes looked around and said, hey, while we're all busy conquering these places, we noticed that our cattle grazed well here. After wandering in the, uh, the wilderness for 40 years, this appears to be the best place to raise animals that we have seen. Now this, I believe, is the first mention of contented cows in the Bible. Let's just take a moment here to see the difference between what we see to be good versus what God desires. Let's be honest. Most of the sins we commit in our lives are based on desiring things that we see, then ignoring what God desires that we do. In other words, we take our eyes off the ball and start to focus on things we see around us. I'm not saying that everything we see is bad. I'm just saying that I am convinced that our eyes are the biggest problem and they can take from what he desires that we accomplish with our lives. And that is the risk the Israelites committed here. Let me try to paraphrase what this group of Israelites are saying. We are tired of fighting. We are tired of wandering through the wilderness. We are tired of being on the move. We like this spot right here. We like the land we just conquered. It is not like we didn't have to fight so far. Let us take what we have right here and we can, do, we can be done with the struggling. What is more, we have lots of livestock. It seems to me they are trying to compromise. It's not a bad thing in terms of getting two, two parties to get along with each other. It's a bad thing when it is less than what God desires of us. Now, before I move on, I'd like to share some Israelite history long after they settle in the promised land. The two tribes that do settle here eventually get conquered. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, 1 to 18, we read a story where Jesus visits the same location over a thousand years later. By Jesus' time, this area was no longer considered Jewish territory. What was a cattle grazing country for those two tribes became a land of non-kosher pigs in the, in the gospel story. My point here is when we settle for less than what God desires of us, it may seem like a good idea at first, but before we know it, we will lose what seems appealing to us. Okay, on to the big question. How do we know that what, God, what we desire is not God's will for our lives? Sometimes the answer is obvious. If it's sinful, the answer is no. 
If we start to pray about a situation and we believe God is saying no, consider that an indication. And if it violates a biblical principle, that is an obvious no. Let's move on to verses 6 to 13. Now, the leaders of these two groups approached Moses and said, we want to live here. Moses then told the story of their parents' generation, where the 12 spies went into the land of Israel. Because most of those spies brought back a bad report, that generation was sentenced to die out in the wilderness. That's the story being told here. Back then, God made it clear to Moses that the Israelites were to go to the actual land of Israel and conquer the residents there. The reward for this service was that they would, go, would get to live in that land. Their parents were too afraid to do this, and then they were sentenced to die in the wilderness. Now, 40 years later, here are two of the 12, 12 Israelite tribes telling Moses that they don't want to go and fight. If they didn't go, it would discourage the other, other tribes. It was also against what God desired for their lives. The land that God wants us to conquer is whatever things, things keep us from trusting him with every aspect of our lives. That includes those things that are appealing to us at any given moment. The best involves completely committing our lives to serving God and not compromising on that trust in him in anything. Verses 14 to 27. The reminder to us is that when we make the decision, decision to turn from his desire, it not only hurts us, but it also hurts others around us. By these two tribes making this decision, it could do harm to the rest of the tribes by their obedience. So here's my question number three. Am I accepting less than what God has for me in this life because I don't want to wait or I want things to be easy or it just looks good to me? At this point, the leaders of these two tribes proposed a different plan. The short version is that the men of these two tribes would go and fight in the land and their wives and children would re remain here while they were off fighting. Technically, this is not a violation of what God desired. He, in effect, his orders were to go to conquer the land of Israel. He never said that they have to live there once they conquer the local residents. Still, it is accepting less than what God desired of their lives. When we are willing to compromise with him in any fashion, we settle for less than what he has for us. Earlier, I mentioned how Jesus visited the same area over a thousand years later. As of Jesus' time, the Israelites no longer control that area. What was a land of cattle became a land of non-kosher pigs, as told in that story. The point is, when we start to compromise with what God desires for our lives, we will discover our lives go downhill in that we eventually lose what we thought was best. All this leads to Moses' response to the modified proposal. Moses is saying, if this is what you want, and if you agree to go and fight with us, you can have this land. Then he says that if they don't do this, you have sinned. We now come to the most famous verse in the pas passage, the last half of verse 23 that says, you may be sure that your sin will find you out. We can't get away with anything. Whatever sin we commit will come back to haunt us, whether we realize it or not. And in context to this package, uh, package passage, we most often think of sin as an act, doing something against God's will. 
but doing nothing is a sin that is not often spoken, spoken of. This sin is to forget one's share in the work carried out for God and his church. Let me quote the words of Matthew Henry. Sin will, without doubt, find out the sinner sooner or later. It concerns us, therefore, to find our sins out, that we, we, may, we may repent of them and forsake them, lest our sins find us out to our ruin and confusion. Let me add this. This includes idleness and self-indulgence. Before this event is to take place, Moses tells the leaders of these two tribes to go build some homes for their wives and children. I am guessing the main point here is that Moses and these two tribes agreed to keep this compromise, even though it was not what God desired for them to do. In verse 25, the people of Gad and Reuben said to Moses, we, your servants, will do as our Lord commands. Now, for time's sake, I'm going to jump down to verses 33 to 42. Verse 33 brings up a whole new discussion. Now, instead of just two tribes, the Gadites and the Reubenites, wanting to live outside of Israel, we also read about half of the tribe of Manasseh, Manasseh, huh, also wanting to join them. Do you remember when it was cool to photobomb? You know, when you're about to take a picture of someone or something else, and usually someone you don't know jumps in the picture behind. Well, this sort of reminds me of that because this is the first time we hear of this half tribe of Manasseh wanting to join the others. So who is this tribe of Manasseh? Manasseh was the older son of Joseph and uh, Azuna. Manasseh is the ancestor of the tribe of Manasseh. When Jacob blessed his grandsons, Manasseh and Ephraim, he gave the preferential treatment to Ephraim instead of the older brother, Manasseh, explaining that Ephraim would become greater than Manasseh. Before his death, Jacob adopted his grandchildren, Manasseh and Ephraim, to be equal with his own sons. We read this back in Genesis 48.5. The tribe of Manasseh is the only tribe that settled on both sides of the Jordan River. Remember that census that was taken back in Numbers 26? Manasseh had 52,700 men who were 20 years or older, and Ephraim had 32,500. When added together, the sons of Joseph totaled 85,200, which was more than any of others of Jacob's sons. In Genesis chapter 48.4, we read that Jacob blessed Joseph and said that God said that he would make him fruitful and will multiply him and will make him a great company of peoples. What this reminds us is that God, God was always faithful in his promise in the past, and he will be faithful to his promise in the future. So what have we learned from these chapters? First, vengeance belongs to God, not us. Second, we must resist the temptation to place prosperity and easy living above obeying God's plan for our lives. Third, we must resist the temptation to succumb to fleshly temptation of what looks good in our eyes. And lastly, we must resist the temptation to settle for anything less than God's fullest and best for us. As Merrill Unger writes in his Unger's a Commentary on the Old Testament, how easy it is for God's people to get so near to what is God's purpose for them and yet be diverted from it by what is expedient from a worldly standpoint. And that is it. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. 
Have you become an official member of our HeartStrong community? Visit heartstrong.life and click membership to sign up. Once you've registered, you will receive an email with links and tips for how to engage everything that HeartStrong has to offer. As a member, you will have access to so much incredible discipleship content found on the members page, such as all of our weekly Bible study events, a monthly training plan with disciplines and practices and discipleship questions to help guide you on your discipleship journey. We also have our most recent Bible study video, all of our teacher Bible study notes, and an on-demand video archive of all of our Bible studies that we have ever done. And lastly, every month we create and curate content to encourage you on your discipleship journey. So what are you waiting for? Visit heartstrong.life and join today. Let's become heartstrong disciples together.